Well, I'm so glad you're here uh, this morning to worship with us. We believe here at Pittsburgh Community Church that God is in the business of renewing people through an encounter with Christ and the power of the gospel. That's our mission. That's our passion. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you're looking for something in your life, I am here to tell you that Jesus is the answer that you're looking for. We need him for true life. He wants to encounter us this morning and breathe his life, bring his life and renewal to our lives in deep and profound ways. So that said, let's turn to God's word this morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 38 through 48 this morning. We are now firmly in our series through the Sermon on the Mount entitled Raising the Bar. These truths are taught straight from the mouth of Jesus. And so if you're just joining us, Jesus has been speaking to a group of people who approached God through this mindset. That God will accept me if I'm good enough. If I do enough right things, if I try hard enough, if I live by the law well enough, then God will accept me. Jesus has been exposing through chapter 5 this truth. We could never be good enough. Because our hearts have been tainted by sin, we could never live up to God's standard of holiness. And therefore, what we need is an alternative righteousness. We need a savior. And so this morning we encounter the third and final chunk of Jesus reorienting our view of God's law and then bringing us to a place of understanding of how our hearts align with his law. Namely, he's exposing this vast gap that exists in our living up to God's standard. And so let's read together Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. These are Jesus' Jesus' words he's speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Church, will you pray with me? Father, here in these moments, we again come to you, God, looking for truth. God, looking for you to speak to us in a way that, is, that, that moves us. God, that enriches us or enlightens us. And I pray, God, in these moments as we come to this text, God, we might find you in it. 
And so speak to us this morning concerning the truths that you lay out here. God, open our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we jump into the text this morning, uh, I want to point out something that I think is important. Um, Often, when a text like this one is taught, it is easy to simply jump into the application and focus on that, on just doing the right action. Right? We say, well, Jesus says Christians are to live this way. Just do it. Just live like this. Just turn the other cheek. Just give away your cloak. Just go the extra mile. Just be a generous person. Just love your enemies. That is how Christians should act. Anything other than that, not perfect. So just go do that. And you know what? That's true. But it's not helpful. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount is that we don't and we cannot act in a truly godly way without something in us being changed. See, there's a difference between the heart that says, I don't commit murder because I don't want to chance losing something, like my freedom. And the heart that says, I don't commit murder because I see my brother with the same value that God places on him. And there's a difference between the heart that says, I don't cheat, I don't commit adultery because it's not worth the cost. And the heart that says, I don't cheat Because my heart's desire is to be faithful as God is faithful. See, in both cases, the action is exactly the same. But the hearts are completely different. One of them is dead to God and simply doing life in the flesh. And the other one is alive to God and is being renewed by him. You see, Jesus has been exposing the depravity of the human heart and how it falls short of God's bar of holiness. And therefore, we need a new heart, he's saying, a heart that has been changed, been made alive to God. And when it comes to our passage this morning, the same thing is true. Because the first question that I ask when I read this passage is who would do that? Right? Who, who would live this way? Who would take this? Who would want to do that? Because the reality is, living this way seems like a lot of giving up, a lot of sacrifice, surrendering, releasing a lot of my personal rights, and in that, having the willingness to bear a lot of injustice. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot coming back to me. What moves a person to a place of willingness to do this? I want us to look for a moment at Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Because I think in Hebrews 10, we have an answer. We see an answer to that question. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 The author is writing to Christians in the church, and he says this, But recall the former days, when, after you were enlightened, 
you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, stop. Stop. What? Right? Was anybody reading that with me? You don't need to raise your hands this morning. But I'm just wondering. How many of us would joyfully accept the plundering of our property this morning? Right? If you got home from church and you found that someone had gone into your house and just taken a bunch of your stuff. Would that bring joy to anyone this morning? No. Right? And that's not exactly what this is saying. But I say it that way simply to get us to think about what a revolutionary and profound shift of mind and heart this is. That these Christians must have had to experience in order to be willing to live in this way. It says they were enlightened. They discovered something so profound that at the core of their being, they were moved to a place of willingness to endure hard suffering. Something so profound that they were moved to a place of willingness to endure public criticism and condemnation. Something so profound that they were willing to give of themselves to care for those who were detested by society. And something so profound, and this is what this means, that they were willing to release their possessions while not allowing the act of injustice to steal their joy. This is a profound heart change. The question is, what did they discover? Verse 34. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Listen. The life that we have in Christ is worth far more than anything that could ever be taken away. The life that we have in Christ is worth far more than anything that can be taken away. Ephesians 1.3 says, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Look at this. In Christ. Every one of us has been given God's blessings. Every one of God's blessings have been given to us in Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2.2, I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him we are rich. 2 Corinthians 4.7 Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What, what is that? It's our mortal bodies, 
right? These frail earthly vessels. We have this treasure in jars of clay in our mortal bodies to show that the surpassing, surpassing power of, belongs to God and not to us. What is this treasure that we have in jars of clay? Well, it says in, verse, in chapter 3, it's God's spirit in us. It's the new covenant of righteousness which has been given to us. It's understanding our new identity in him. It's the freedom from our bondage to sin. And it's beholding the glory of the Lord. And in that, being transformed into his image in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. That in him I am full. And that no one could ever take that away from me. That I am fully loved. That I am fully accepted. That I am fully valued. And that I am fully secure in him. He has given me everything. He is my source. He is my sufficiency. And that moves me into a place in my heart where now I can begin to, out of that, truly live how God wants me to live. Because I lack nothing. In that, I can give up some things. In that, I can surrender some of my rights. I can bear some injustice. I can love the unlovable because in him, I am full. And in the losing of some of those earthly things, well, perhaps I'm not losing as much as maybe I originally thought I was. And in that, now we can begin to unpack our text. Verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When we think of this Old Testament concept, we generally think of it in terms of justice. Right? You did something to me, and so therefore, it's fair, and I'm justified now in doing something back to you. We might call this retaliation or payback. We're all very familiar with it, right? Someone once said revenge is a dish best served cold, right? That that just means that we have this tendency to, to hold on to this sense of justice in our lives, sometimes for a very long time. I came across a story this week by a woman named Kaylee, which I think illustrates this mindset. So she shared a a quote. A few years ago, uh, I was grocery shopping and I needed some coconut milk. And when I got there, a young couple was standing in front of the area where I needed to go, arguing about their recipe and whether or not it needed coconut milk or coconut cream. After waiting for a minute for them to resolve their issue... I realized that I would be waiting for a really long time. And so I politely asked if I could squeeze by. The woman turned to me and told me to just bleeping wait! Well, thankfully, her boyfriend had some manners. Stepped back, moved his girlfriend aside, who all the while continued to loudly complain that the world didn't revolve around her, Well, I don't like being sworn at, especially by strangers. And so I decided to buy the entire store's worth of coconut milk and cream. (laughs) 
about $45 worth of pure pettiness. And you know what? I have no regrets. <laughs> right? Revenge! Eye for an eye, baby! Here's the problem. It's not. See, the human tendency is not to pay back only that which was given, but then to one-up, right? To take a little bit more. Because that's true justice in our minds. I pay back the wrong, but also on top of that, I put the cost for my pain and suffering, the tax which you took, uh, of that which you took from me. We've all walked into the room of a screaming child. Yeah, Billy punched me! And you say, well, well, Billy, why'd you punch your sister? Well, because she pushed me. Okay, well, why'd you push? Because you stole my crayon. Well, why'd you steal her crayon? Because she wouldn't share, right? Retaliation escalates. The heart of the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law was not given to justify revenge, but to limit retaliation. If someone takes an eye, you only get to take an eye back. You steal an apple from my cart, I don't get to burn down your house. Right? Equal retaliation. It was the restriction of unlimited revenge. Further, it was never intended as an excuse for individual retaliation, or what we might consider vigilante justice. It belonged to a court of law. And it's being carried out was to be in the hands of a just judge. An eye for an eye was all about making sure that no one took advantage of you and that you only got what you deserved from others. Jesus says, I agree with that. I have not come to abolish that law. But Jesus is about to reveal that God's heart is that his people live with an entirely different heart. One that releases retribution and selfishness and pride and instead extends generosity and humility and love. Verse 39, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This whole teaching is about the laying down of self. Don't resist an evil person. That that idea of resisting, that word in the Greek, means setting yourself up against another person. Don't set yourself up against an evil person. Who's that? It's one who uh, does not act in a way toward us that how God would act, right? Who brings annoyance to us, who brings hardship to us, who would wrong us. Don't set yourself up against that kind of person. Don't draw a dividing line between you and them. Jesus is saying that broken people in a sinful world will wrong you. God's heart is that you would be willing to endure that. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
Without getting into all of the nuances of this, people would do this in Jesus' day as a means of insulting a person. It was more than a physical attack. It was also an attack on a person's character. Anyone here know what it's like to be insulted? I know I do. Right? Anyone here ever know what it's like to have your character attacked? I know I do. God's heart is that we would be willing to release that without retaliation. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is a rights issue. You see, the law forbade anyone from taking your cloak. But Jesus is saying that godly action is to be willing in our heart to lay down our rights for the sake of another. To respond in humility and in kindness instead of retaliation. If you want something that bad, here, have it. My, my identity is not in this. This is not what I consider valuable to me. In many ways, it's saying, you're what I consider valuable. Jesus continues, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. A Roman soldier could legally command a citizen to carry his pack for up to one mile. Beyond that, he couldn't do that. That was against the law. But up to one mile, he could force a citizen to carry his pack. And the citizen couldn't do anything about it. They had to do it. Jesus is saying that godly action is when we carry within us a servant's heart. We see the need and say, you need help? I'll help you. You know, even if it's inconvenient for me, I'll do it. I'll do my obligations for sure, but then I'll do it because I choose to love, because I choose to honor you. The next example is that of a generous heart. Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, instead of hoarding what we have, what we've earned... Right? That's our tendency. Like, I've earned this. It's mine. How dare anybody take it from me? Jesus is saying that our default position should be to say yes to the person in need and to be generous with what we have. So here's the question that I want to give to us this morning that I'd like us to ponder. Why do we hold on? Right? Whether it's to money or, or, or possessions, or to uh, offense? Like, why do we feel this sense of injustice when we are called to part with those things? And here's the answer. It's because we feel as if we are being robbed of something. It's in those things that we have placed our treasure. The greatest commandment says, love God, love others as we love ourselves. But Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if we're too caught up in loving our stuff and loving ourselves, then we are falling short of the loving God, loving others thing. Now we'll get to that again in a few weeks because that's also part of the Sermon on the Mount. But this is the heart that honors the Lord. 
In our passage this morning, Jesus has one more example for us, verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what rewards do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Right? Tax collectors, scum of the earth. Gentiles, pagans. You're doing the same thing that they are. Instead, what Jesus says, listen to verse 48. Here's the true standard. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. couple of things. The law never actually says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's not in the law. That was just common practice of the day, much like it is today. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus is exposing the heart, right? Because that exposes the gap between us and how we think and God, and how he thinks. Scripture says that we, in sin, are enemies of God. Right? Not that we are his enemy, but he is our enemy. But even as enemies, even though we're continually choosing against him, and rebelling, and not going his way, and not wanting to follow him, and instead exalting and following ourselves, even though that's our position, what we see in the Father is a heart that loves us enough to come after us and to extend his salvation and his grace to us in in Jesus Christ, his Son. Even while we were still sinners, Even while we were his enemies, in his incredible mercy, he continues to show and to extend love to those who don't love him back. He chooses to continually extend love to those who continually choose against him. That's the true heart of God. And in that recognition of this love, The hope is that we might see it and be compelled to respond to it. Jesus says it's easy to love those who love you. It's godlike to love those who don't. And then to pray for their blessing and their well-being. He says that's perfect. Perfection is attained when we demonstrate in our lives those characteristics that reflect the heart and the nature of God. That's perfection. If you want the standard, write it down. Perfection is attained when we demonstrate in our lives those characteristics that reflect the heart and nature of God. When it comes to the issues of sacrifice and laying down our image and laying down our rights and being generous and releasing wrongdoings and loving those who don't love us in return. 
Are we measuring up? Are we perfect in that? No. There's a gap. We need a Savior. We need an alternative righteousness. Jesus didn't come to change our actions. He came to change our hearts. That's the mark of salvation. That's our sanctification. The question is, are we being transformed into his image? Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is Jesus renewing our mind about? That our worth and our value don't come from the things of this world, but from the identity placed on us in Christ. That in him we have everything. That he is our sufficiency in this life and in the next. That our treasure is not in things of this world, but in him. That our identity is not in how we're treated and what others think about us. It's in him. He is our life. He is our salvation. He is our source and our sufficiency. And in him we are secure. No one can take us out of his hand. Therefore, what can the world take from us that we do not gain back in spades from him? I want to close the message with this verse from 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Would you enter into that love relationship with the Lord this morning? See, he died to take your sin, to cover that gap, to give you a new heart and an alternative righteousness, his righteousness. A righteousness not based on what we do, on our good work, on our hard work, but on his finished work. Would you commit your heart to following him and then allow him to begin to transform you this morning. Church, let's pray.